Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome to the podcast on obesity part two. Is it really the diet for obesity that makes sense? And what works? Is it what we eat or when we eat? Is carb bad or is it the fat? So as everyone knows, obesity has now become a major global health concern. We now know that obesity is a risk factor for COVID-19 hospitalization and deaths. It also has been linked to insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, PCOS, hyperlipidemia, heart disease, stroke, kidney disease, depression, osteoarthritis, mood and age-related neurodegenerative diseases like dementia, and also in many cancers. And as everyone knows, obesity can impair our physical performance. So losing weight had been shown to improve mood, builds self-confidence, decreases inflammation and oxidative stress, and also had improved cardiometabolic profile in many individuals. Obesity Part 1 podcast covered the statistics and the consequences of diabetes in details. Today, we will talk about managing obesity through lifestyle modifications, which one of them will be dietary lifestyle change. So we will explore the whys, the whats, the how, and when these dietary modifications are advantageous, and we'll give a different groupings of the diet plans and strategies, and we'll also talk about intermittent fasting. Nicole Samignani will help facilitate the discussion. As many of you had met Nicole in previous podcasts, she is an avid supporter of ABCs for Global Health, which is our nonprofit organization. And she is a graduate student at UCSF going for her master's in global health. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. And then let me also welcome a good friend, Drew Versalino. Drew is an awesome chiropractor with passion centered to health and wellness. Drew started his career coaching and teaching in the sports, performance, and fitness realm since 2008. That includes personal training, leading group classes for adult and youth athletic programs, and now caring for patients to help them achieve their goals and true health potentials. With a drive and motivation to learn more and better help his clients, he took numerous courses from kettlebell certifications to functional movement workshops and eventually wound up in chiropractic college. His passion for health and wellness led him to do additional training in functional nutrition, athletic performance, and specialized technique within chiropractic medicine called upper cervical, which he utilizes in his office in Dublin, California. His passion is to help people develop strength and resilience, both mentally and physically, so they can reach their full potential. Welcome, Drew. Thank you, Dr. Aviola. Great to be here. 
Thank you. And also, Drew will help clarify all these dietary strategies and different combinations thereof, how they work, their benefits, and pitfalls. So welcome, both of you. Great. Thank you so much for having us. You know, there's so many different diets out there. So I guess let's start with the most basic question in this conversation is, why are we even talking about diets? Like, what are we discussing? Well, um, in one of the podcast engaging emails, several people had talked about the importance of dietary regimens to approach obesity. But I think it's beyond just weight loss. It is really to promote health and prevent diseases like hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, hyperlipidemia, or high cholesterol, or changing those cholesterol profile, preventing renal disease, cancer, osteoarthritis and to improve also our mood and cognitive function. So I think in diseases, better nutrition also helps people respond to their therapy better. And in a lot of my research, there'd been data that showed that it promotes also healthy aging and longevity and improves the quality of lives of people. What do you think, Drew? Yeah, I mean, the thing I always work on with patients is starting with the goal, right? Why are we talking about this? But a lot of times when it comes to obesity, dietary intervention seems to be something that helps quite a bit. (laughs) And one of the things I talk about to my patients is there's like three things that I've kind of boiled it down that we sort of have to accept and just own up to as being humans or being adults. One of them is exercise. One of them is sleep. Can't really not do those. And then the other one is diet. I guess you're not exercise, but your diet and your sleep, you kind of really have to work on those. And so we need to dedicate some time in our personal lives outside of work and outside of trying to have fun all the time to really focus on what's going to help our bodies thrive in this environment for as long as possible so that we can really enjoy things. I like that thrive thing, you know, it's not just living, but thriving, right? So I've seen several patients and even during disease process, really a better diet helps us respond to our diseases better. It improves the way we feel. It improves our response to therapy. It improves our mood. It may help us feel less depressed when we're confronted with some diseases. Yeah. And, you know, speaking on that topic, of course, depending on what disease or what ailments you're facing in your everyday life, there's so many different diets out there. So it's really important to do the research and talk to your providers to see which one is best suited for you. So that can bring me to the next question, which is what are the different types of diet out there? Oh my goodness. And it's so mind boggling how many diets are out there. Sometimes I have to say, oh, which one will work for me, right? So there are a lot of diets out there and I would encourage people to really look for a diet that will be in alignment with your preferences, lifestyle, your schedule. It may be a good diet, but if you don't have time to plan and prepare for it, it's no good. I think Drew will help us outline the groupings first, and then maybe we'll talk about the major diets out there and we'll help each other in terms of putting some clarity on this diet. I think then we will defer the decision to our audience in terms of what diet will fit their lifestyle and preferences. Yeah. And I think with what you let in with in the beginning is what's the goal? And then obviously what's your lifestyle afford you to one financially, 
so time-wise so that you can make it work with what you have available. And then obviously, you know, if you're having some sort of real health issue, definitely want to consult with your provider to see if you have any other underlying things or some restrictions, especially if you're taking certain medications or whatever. But beyond that, it's really what's going to fit with your lifestyle. So if we kind of put out all the different type of diets, right, we have on one end is only plants, right? And then on the other end, I guess would be only meat and everything in between, right? And so it's always a battle or a struggle to kind of find out what's going to work for you. So we found, and there's people who've popularized certain special diets. If we talk about vegan, which is going to be mainly fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, Sometimes they won't even have like things like honey or dairy or anything like that because they want to avoid pretty much all animal products. Vegetarian, which it's kind of like one of those terms, it's a little bit more lax. So you can entertain the idea of having dairy or honey or some animal-based products that's not really the protein, like eggs. And then you have something like the Mediterranean diet, which is kind of a blend of everything, including some grains. And then you have, I guess, maybe on the other end, there's something like paleo, which is still going to be things that you would be able to find in nature by itself, very low processed or non-processed foods. Those are some of the kind of ideas behind the diets. But I think what might help, maybe I stepped over my toes a little bit talking talking about this too much is differentiating the difference between something like low carb, high carb, low fat, high fat, protein. What does it all mean? I think we should get into that just a little bit to kind of like differentiate it all, right? Because sometimes we don't even know like what's a carbohydrate, what's a fat, what's a protein. Yeah, then we could talk about the principles of this dietary regimens. So we know that there should be a balance of these nutrients. There should be a balance between carbohydrates, proteins, and fat. Sometimes there are food that we don't know how to classify. Are they fat or are they carbohydrates? For example, avocado. Is it a fruit? Is it a vegetable? And then I think what we need to know that we need to emphasize, there should be a balance of these nutrients. So there are diets out there that's 80% fat. So what would be the percentage of the rest of the other nutrients that people need? So then it will be very deficient in carbohydrates and deficient in protein. Similarly, when people embark on a very, very high protein diet or a high, high carb diet, then they will be deficient on the other one. So there should be some sort of balance between the three of them. What's the percentages? And I think irrespective of the determinants of weight loss, I think adherence to the macronutrient composition is really important. That also weight loss is a balance of calorie intake and expenditure. So you mentioned this diet are great, but I think we need to supplement them with the right physical exercise and activity and also balance this with sleep and stress reduction. So let's dig in in terms of what are those different diet regimens. Let's just talk about the main ones. What are the benefits and the pros and cons of each one? So Nicole, would you want to lead us through? Absolutely. So I can start with the Mediterranean diet. That is the diet that I adhere to. And I'll start by saying that I really chose this as kind of a challenge to myself. So I am Brazilian. I grew up eating a lot of meat in my household. And it was a difficult switch for me to kind of drop the heavy animal red meat product and switch over to eating more vegetables and mainly fish or seafood as my protein. 
I'll say that the experience that I had was that I really was introduced to so many new vegetables. Like I had never eaten cauliflower before. (laughs) My dad doesn't like cucumbers or bell peppers. So that was just not something I ate growing up. And now I'm like, wow, you were making me miss out on all these delicious vegetables. (laughs) So it's also kind of fun, right? I think when you are changing your diet, even though it's something, you know, for serious for weight loss, or if you do have obesity, you really need to be able to enjoy it and still be able to, you know, like you said, thrive, right? We don't want to just move day to day with this pressure on your shoulders and this stress of having to adhere to a diet that you're not happy with. So it's important that in choosing your diet, you also remain flexible to maintaining certain foods in your life that you really genuinely enjoy eating. So the Mediterranean diet is primarily plant based, it includes a lot of daily intake of whole grains, olive oils, fruits, vegetables, beans, other legumes, nuts, herbs and spices. I love spices. Sometimes people don't put spices on their food. And I'm just like, you know, spices just really elevate the meal and it doesn't really have that much in it. So if you're not allergic to anything, just throw some spices on there and elevate your food. (laughs) So you do or you're able to eat animal proteins on the Mediterranean diet. However, like I said, it is preferred that you eat fish and seafood just because it's a little bit lighter and the poultry, eggs and dairy just a few times a week and red meats are suggested to eat only once or twice per month. Like I said, I personally don't even eat red meat or poultry anymore, but I'm not opposed to eating it on the future. If I ever go back to Brazil after COVID, I'll definitely have to eat some meat with my family. (laughs) And then you mentioned this a little bit earlier, which is, you know, how do we categorize the different foods, right? So avocado, for example, I do count it as a fat in my macros and right, our macros are the carbs, fats and proteins. And it's important that when you do change your diet, you are aware of these different macros, because sometimes they do add up. So a lot of people when they switch to a plant based diet, they don't realize that they end up in taking a lot more fats than they should in their daily dietary intake. So a great way is, you know, rule of hand is when you eat an avocado, you should only eat one eighth to one quarter of an avocado per serving. Many people end up eating half an avocado or a full avocado in a serving. But of course, that's just balancing your fats throughout the day. So there's healthy fats like the olive oil is recommended on the Mediterranean and nuts and things like avocado. And then olive oils I usually use to replace other fats like butter or margarine and nuts, oily fishes, you know, salmon is a great fish. It is also very fatty. So it has a lot of protein, has a lot of fat, which is totally fine. But again, still maintaining that idea of balance in everything that you're eating. And I try to maintain high water intake. You can on this diet, you can do whatever you want, but recommended for the diet is moderate intake of wine. So maybe a glass or two, maybe just once a week with your diet, with dinner and physical activity. I feel like diet is so important, but being physically active will also have you more engaged in wanting to stick to a healthy diet and actually enjoying maintaining that healthy diet. So even doing something like walking around your neighborhood for 30 minutes a day is really going to give you those endorphins to continue moving, continue eating and continue exploring like new foods that you maybe have never tried before. So the Mediterranean diet is also tied to decreased risk in heart disease, depression and dementia. And the tricky part is when we look at the pyramid, right? We know this like food pyramid that I think we all saw for the first time in like elementary school. It just shows you pictures of the different foods in each category, but it doesn't really have a specific portion size. So 
that's where it gets a little bit tricky. And of course, your portion sizes are going to vary by body type and by lifestyle. Allow yourself to adjust according to, you know, the life that you live. But just be mindful that there is no one set rule for portion sizing and all of these things, these macros that we're discussing. It really is dependent person to person. And allow yourself to experiment a little bit, see what works for you. And of course, always talk to your provider because they might have some information that can be really helpful. Yeah, I agree. It's actually one of the highly researched dietary regimen out there. And the research shows in long-term studies that although it has not been great in terms of weight loss dietary plan, it has been shown to actually prevent and also improve people with cardiovascular conditions. Like there's this PREDIMED trial, which shows a primary prevention in thousands of patients with diabetes diabetes and other risk factors for heart disease, that it has been shown to actually decrease the risk of death by stroke, decrease stroke by 30%. The nurses' health study and the health professional studies where they had tens of thousands of patients, they have shown improved in aging and cognitive function and also cardiovascular health. So I think it's both on about the lengthening of the telomeres and perhaps anti-oxidative stress and decrease free radical formation. So more things to follow, but Mediterranean diet may be a blueprint for all diets with some modification if the main goal is weight loss. But if the main goal is mainly weight loss plus cardiovascular health and healthy aging, then maybe there should be some combination or reduction of the calories that are on the Mediterranean diet. Yeah. And I'll just leave like a last tip. Obviously, I'm super passionate about this diet because this is what I do. (laughs) You know, something to be mindful of, I think Drew might have mentioned this earlier, is that depending on what side of the scale you're on, you know, you're missing out on some nutrients, right? If you're eating a really red meat heavy diet versus just plant diet, you are going to miss out on a few nutrients along the way. So just be mindful of the things that you're missing. So for me personally, since I don't eat red meat and poultry, I don't get a lot of vitamin B12. So there are ways for you to supplement that in your diet. And of course, B12 can be linked to depression and other things as well. So it's important to always be mindful of that. And, you know, nutritional yeast is a great thing to add into your meals to kind of help build a nice, full, well-rounded meal as well. Yeah, I like that plate portion size and I like to see colors of food, right? So I like plates and talking about colors of food, I was told that if you have this rainbow color, it should be healthy. But then one of my patients said, how about (laughs) M&M's? <laughs> so chocolate never hurt anybody. <laughs> so I said, well, M&Ms have different colors. It's probably not the most nutritious and healthy food out there. So we mean different colors is different colors of food, right? The different mm-hmm. vegetables. And actually, when I see colors on my plate, it actually enticed me to eat more. It looks so palatable. It just doesn't look so monotonous like a meat and baked potato or something. So since you said that Mediterranean diet is plant-based and maybe people don't lose weight because it's heavy in terms of carbohydrates and they have unlimited wine on it also. And how much olive oil do you have to add? But so how do you modulate the carbs? Like are all carbs equal? 
Right. So for me, I do stick to whole grain or whole wheat when I'm eating carbs. Of course, I eat a lot of beans like chickpeas. Chickpeas are known for carrying a lot of protein. So that's kind of how I substitute some protein. I'll also just give a recommendation to all the listeners that there is a free application that you can get on the app store called MyFitnessPal. It's completely free. And it's a great way if you're new to micro and macronutrients to track the food that you're eating. And you don't have to track your food forever, right? Like the idea is not to have this really strict plan for the rest of your life, but it is going to help give you a better idea of what is in everything that you're eating and kind of help you visualize your meals and understand better how you can balance out, you know, your carbs, your proteins and your fats. Yeah. So the more highly processed the carb is, the worse it is, right? So whole grains, they have all the fiber component in it, like, for example, steel cut oatmeal, for example. So you have the benefit of the fiber. And the reason for that is if you eat a carb that's either high in glycemic index or it's highly processed, what it does, it increases your insulin secretion. And you know, we all know that insulin is a store. So it wants to store it as fat. So if you have to choose on carbs, you have to choose the high fiber, whole grain, things to avoid are flour, pancakes, donuts, right? And even with fruits, there are high glycemic fruits and there are low glycemic fruits. So you could choose like berries, for example, are a lot more healthy. So in terms of protein, you mentioned, Nicole, that people could choose plant-based protein. So it doesn't have to be all red meat or chicken or poultry or fish, but there is plant-based protein like garbage. So yeah, uh, I just found out edamame is very high in protein. Oh my gosh, I eat so much edamame. I love, I it. love edamame. Yeah. <laughs> or you know, like tofu, right? I mean, soy, some people don't like to eat soy or they can't eat soy, but soy is another good one if you're eating like tofu and things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tofu is a great one there. Like all these lentils and beans, legumes are also high in protein. You grew up in Brazil and growing up from the Philippines, I came out here, I just eat meat and rice, meat and rice and fish, meat and rice and fish. And when you talk about vegetables, I'm one of the doctors who don't like vegetables and I'm just beginning to learn how to increase my salad intake. You cannot have me eat broccoli or asparagus. <laughs> so I'm beginning to start this and I'm actually liking them. So I mean, we could all learn. When I was in medical school, I saw cardiologists who were heavy smokers, who ate all these high fat meals. And I think we're all learning. Not all of us in medicine are healthy eaters. So we should learn as well. So yeah. let's move on to the next diet. It's a good time to go to the keto diet, right? Which oh. is kind of an opposite. I I think this is Drew's specialty. Yeah, so ketogenic diet, right? I think it's important to kind of define what that really is. And unfortunately, it's not well defined when it comes to, I can pull up a textbook and say like keto means X, Y, Z. But there's some loose definitions by a lot of the researchers and not just researchers, but also doctors who implement this as a treatment for given conditions. So originally, I believe it was heavily utilized to help treat people with epileptic seizures, specifically in children, and they found great success with that. And so they started to ask more and more questions. And one of the things that they found by 
following this diet is that by focusing more on fat and really restricting carbohydrates and even protein, it basically puts your body into a, for simple sake, into a fat burning mode. And when you burn fat as calories, that's great. You get some calories from that. But one of the byproducts of burning fat is a production of ketones, which provides even more energy for your body. So those ketones can be utilized in the brain and the heart and a few other organs as a really good fuel source that's very clean in nature. And it's going to be very low extra waste products, I guess you would say. So that's sort of kind of what ketones are. They're very specialized and beneficial type of fuel for the body. And the way you can get into that state of quote unquote ketosis, we can measure ketones same way we can measure blood sugar. You can either take a prick of the finger. Sometimes they'll do a breath test. Sometimes they even do a urine test to kind of the different ways to measure it. But in a lot of the research, it's primarily done with the blood and you'll get a reading within a very narrow range. I think 0.5 to one millimolars is kind of like the minimum end of being in nutritional ketosis. And then all the way on up to like four or five, maybe even six millimolars. Now I want to throw in this and Dr. Gabriela, you know a lot more about this than I would when it comes to the extreme end, if you have like type one diabetes, you would have really high levels, in which case you would probably start to notice an issue way before you try a diet, you start to lose a lot of weight, energy would be really fluctuating, like, you know, maybe you can share just really briefly on that. Sure. Actually, most of us, normal individuals, that's not with type 1 or type 2 diabetes, right? So if we respond to a glucose load or to any nutrient load, we respond to it by secretion of insulin. So that's a given that's automated in our system, unless we develop type 1 diabetes where you have absolute insulin deficiency or type 2 diabetes where you don't produce enough or you're deficient or either you're deficient of insulin production in type 2 diabetes, or you are not responsive to the insulin that you secrete. So that's called insulin resistance. So for example, in a normal human being, actually, we are on intermittent ketosis mode, like during sleep, that's fasting. If you go to bed at nine o'clock, you don't eat from nine o'clock until the morning, for example, until eight. So that's about, you know, nine to nine, for example, is a 12 hour fast already when you sleep, if you didn't eat anything. So we have intermittent ketosis, but not condition called ketoacidosis, where you actually could not cope with the massive ketone load. So as your ketones get so high, you become acidotic. The pH in your blood goes down. You urinate more to excrete that glucose load because you cannot metabolize the glucose and you oxidize fat into ketones. Examples of those are are the acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. So those will accumulate in your system and you have to get those out. So those people who goes into a severe ketoacidosis, you could actually smell their breath. It's like a fruity odor. And so you are in trouble. Then we have to give you insulin to basically reverse that metabolic switch. Basically, ketogenic diet is like switching your metabolism from glucose burning to fat burning mode. Yeah. And the big part is not to put like a lot of fear in people for, for the diet itself, but just to let people know that that's something that's possible. 
right. Because this is really a very, very low carbohydrate diet and very, very high in fat. Like 70 to 80% is fat and the carbohydrate is very, very minimal. It's not a very low carbohydrate diet, but low enough that you could actually go into ketosis mode. If you combine that with fasting, then it's even worse. So I think if people would like to embark on a ketogenic diet, which is really not advisable because people could get into trouble and it's also not a long-term solution for the problem. I think you have to talk it over with your physician, make sure that you don't have the contraindication for a ketogenic diet, such as one of them is diabetes. So diabetes is one. And then I think if you are already deficient in some nutrients, that's probably not a good diet for you among other things. So what could be the benefit of a ketogenic diet? Yeah, so there's a few things, right? And you can think about it if we're switching our fuel source, like the body is kind of like a hybrid. So we have different types of fuel that we can utilize to run this beautiful machine. And so one of those fuels can be fat and, you know, one of them could be carbohydrates or glucose. And then another one could be ketones. So ultimately when we burn fat, we're making ketones and you can almost think of them as like a signaling molecule to the body. So I got my little cheat sheet here. So I think so I can remember, but one of the signaling things is to preserve muscle glycogen by the ketones floating around in the body. Your muscles will better utilize fat and ketones. So you can preserve glycogen because, well, side note, a lot of people who are endurance athletes utilize a ketogenic diet because of its efficiency at allowing them to run for long distances. On the opposite end, for high power output type of athletes like sprinters, they might not do as well with this type of diet because they're going to be burning more glucose as they go through a very short type of event. And so in those cases, it's very beneficial for our body for survival to be able to store glycogen and preserve it for those times where we, you know, if we were to be caveman mode, you know, you want to get away really quickly. So that's one really cool one. Another one I've been doing quite a bit of research on because I found this interesting was actually decreasing. This might be a little bit confusing for the audience, but as far as decreasing the allergic response, mast cells tend to release their stuff when you have allergic type of responses, but it's been shown actually in some of the research to actually decrease that huge allergic response to certain things in the environment or certain other foods that we eat. And another one is as far as gut health, providing the different cells of the body, cells of the gut for their fuel, and then also brain health as well. So talked a little bit about kids and adults with epileptic seizures, but also there's some interesting research going on right now working with individuals who are suffering from different neurodegenerative issues like Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, and Parkinson's, who specifically in Alzheimer's talking about potentially calling it like type 3 diabetes or insulin resistance or sugar resistance in the brain itself. So if we can work on providing them another fuel source for the brain, hopefully it can work that much better and, and start to allow things in their brain to work that much better. Yeah, yeah. But also ketogenic diet has been shown to actually stimulate increased energy expenditure because of, you know, it takes so much energy to convert fat and protein to glucose. So it has also a satiety effect. It decreases the hunger. So mm-hmm. ketone bodies are good in terms of decreasing the hunger. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the promotion of fat loss because of oxidation of fat cells, partly because of decreased insulin level because it's very low in carbohydrates. So it's also low in insulin levels. And many research had shown really decrease in triglycerides and increase in HDL. And you yourself, Drew, probably had seen that on your biometrics. And it also decreases blood pressure. And people looked at it also, it improves insulin resistance. 
Yeah, that's actually brings up a good point. I actually did when I first got into this, into really like wanting to experiment on myself with the diet. First, I read a couple books to make sure I knew what I was doing. And then I decided to get some lab work done, which is just a basic panel for cholesterol and, and just a few other things. Cholesterol was the main thing I was interested in. I did the diet for six weeks and then ran the blood labs again. And then just like as you would expect, if you read the books and did the research, HDL went up, LDL went down triglycerides went down and total cholesterol went down and then subjectively felt better. Sleep was a little bit better as well. So those were all really, really interesting things. But I think it's really important when it comes to diving into understanding the ketogenic sort of diet is when it comes to the research, a lot of times you can almost find research to support whatever thing you want to believe when it comes to the ketogenic diet. But a lot of the research is looking at the percentages, like you were saying, like 70, 80% fat. That's a very rare type of study that shows that high of a percentage of fat. Normally they consider anything over, I think like 40 or 50% of your calories from fat to be a high fat diet, which if you're trying to get into nutritional ketosis, that probably won't happen because that means if you're at 50% fat, that means that protein and carbs got to make up the rest of it. And you're not going to be able to get yourself into a ketogenic state because you're going to be screening too much insulin at that point. It's kind of like a blocker of that. There's some really mixture of research there, right? So some of them are just anecdotal, some of them with low numbers, and people haven't decided like what type of fat do you include yeah. <laughs> on the diet, right? And there are people out there, they said, oh, they could eat as many bacon as they want to eat, for example. So I think we have to probably do more systematic research on this keto diet and really look at the long-term consequences of the diet mm-hmm. as opposed to just like the short-term consequences on weight loss. So to explore more about the potential benefits and long-term consequences of the ketogenic diet, for example, right now we're seeing like people develop gout and having severe vitamin deficiency like B vitamins because it's deficient in fiber, minerals, iron, magnesium, and zinc. So those will be deficient in people who are really just wedded to the strict ketogenic diet. So I think people should be remaining flexible and see how they are experiencing this and certainly follow up with your physician and measure your parameters. Yeah, and definitely some guidance. I would love to hear your thoughts, Drew, on this topic of short-term versus long-term because it's such a popular diet. Personally, I know a lot of people that will do it for a month or two and just want to get quick weight loss, right? And then once you get out of that keto diet, if you don't transition well to your regular diet again, you're going to end up gaining that weight. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on like a short-term versus long-term maintaining that diet. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, first of all, to answer that question, a lot of the research supports that it's highly, highly effective for dropping fat very quickly, especially if you do caloric restriction. So if you're doing, you know, caloric restriction with the ketogenic diet, chances are, as long as you don't have any underlying health conditions, you'll drop the weight pretty quickly. I think it's an ego booster, right? For people who are really challenged with their weight, with self-image and stuff like that. If you drop 40 pounds, 50 pounds in a few months, that will be a great way to start and perhaps improve the diet so you're not too restrictive. 
And, yeah. And, and the other thing too, is there's the other part about like the mindset, which we kind of talked about as far as like, what's the goal. Right. But if you're just going into it for weight loss, because you want to fit into your wedding dress or whatever, chances are the underlying inside motivation is probably not aligned with the person's values. So once they do say, okay, this thing is done, I'm going to go back to eating the way I really want to. They were overweight to begin with. So of course, they're going to put the weight back on because they didn't really change the mindset and their whole entire lifestyle, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later. But really, I think there's a few things at play. And realistically, any diet that you follow, that's going to be some caloric restrictions some some discipline aligned with it. You're probably going to lose some weight. It's just a matter of how dedicated you are. Making sure that short term, you probably won't have much, if at all, in any of the nutrition deficiencies, unless you're already deficient. But long term, those are the questions that, of course, you have all the anecdotal stuff from people who do it, quote unquote, right, versus the people who, who do it just for the short term to begin with. So I think there's a lot of questions still to ask. But just like if someone was to follow, and I'm not trying to knock anyone, but if someone was to follow a vegan diet, you got to make sure that you're, you know, like you mentioned earlier, B12, things like that, you got to make sure that you're doing it right. Because because you want to do your best. And in that instance, a lot more times people are trying to focus on their overall health when it comes to like a vegan type of diet. And some people choose to think that the ketogenic diet is going to help with their health. It's just really a matter of commitment, at least in my experience, is like how committed are you? And what are the different things you're going to choose in your change in your life that line up with that? And I think the hardest part, no matter what diet, is always going to be your support network. Who's on your team, your spouse, your family, whatever it is, are they doing it with you? Because you're probably going to be a lot more successful if they are versus like myself being the weirdo going out and asking for them. <laughs> you know, I go to a restaurant and like, let me get the steak with broccoli. Right. So I think really it bears looking into it because it's really a great rapid uh, weight loss program. And I think once people reaches the way to, to sustain that in a healthy fashion by looking at their diet and selecting the healthy food, like reducing saturated fat and converting to the unsaturated fat. And also I would be cognizant in people who are pregnant, who are breastfeeding and who are growing like like adolescents, probably not to get into this ketogenic diet. Like the person who is getting married, you know, they may get into a size six or size two, but then to sustain that after would probably be mainly a lifelong commitment, like commitment to really healthy lifestyle. Yeah. Summary for the dietary approaches to obesity. Everyone knows that doctors love to give prescriptions. I myself have started following my own prescription. As I mentioned in the past, I grew up being a Mediterranean or carnivore. My last few weeks of intensely researching all the dietary approaches to obesity, cardiovascular health, and healthy aging, I became convinced that a plant-based diet is the way to go. Here's my summary healthy diet prescription. You may tailor it according to your goals, preferences, lifestyle, and sustainability as a lifelong change. Number one, balance of macronutrients. Lots of examples of plant-based carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. So plant-based diet with servings of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, high dietary fiber, and legumes are preferred. As one of my star medical students said, if it does not have a label, it must be healthy. Go figure, right? 
So for carbohydrates, there are healthy carbohydrates such as fruits, vegetables, whole grains, sweet potatoes, quinoa, silkat, oatmeal, beans, apples, barley, black beans, berries, corn, and brown rice. Those are just a few examples. Now for protein, plant-based proteins such as tofu, tempeh, edamame, lentils, chickpeas, peanuts, almonds, spirulina, quinoa, potatoes, legumes, and nuts. So for non-plant-based protein, one may consider fish, seafood, and poultry, and minimize the consumption of red meat especially processed meat, eggs, and milk. For fat, monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats are preferred. Plant-based fat are examples of which are olive oil, avocado, tahini, canola oil, peanut oil, nuts, chia seeds, flax seeds, walnuts, almonds. Avoid saturated fat and trans fat. Most of these fats are solid at room temperatures, so you could identify them. Just imagine something like this solid fat coating the lining of your blood vessels. And then number two, avoid or minimal use of highly processed food, refined carbohydrates like pastries, cookies, donuts, muffins, cakes, and fried food. Avoid high fructose corn syrup, juices, sweetened beverages, additives, and preservatives. And number three, enjoy planning, preparing, and eating your food, especially with family and friends. Give yourself frequent feedback, pat on your shoulder if you're doing well, and enjoy how it feels to treat yourself the right way. Ciao! See you next time! Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.